0: At some point, my dog may burst into my room and hop up on my bed. Here, uh, he get he likes to come investigate when I'm uh, uh, talking to someone that isn't there.
1: It's okay. We are uh, a,
0: a pet friendly podcast here. Yeah. So uh, he he just may make some noise about it, but he'll probably fl- flop down and just be in the room for the duration. <laughs> that's that's fine. We've
1: had uh, Calvin's dog Yoger on the cast a couple times, make noise mm-hmm. and whatnot. We are used to various interruptions. What's going on with the Kentucky Derby?
0: Yeah, horse names these days are so lame. Oh, that's that's always the best part of
1: horse races. Not even the, the money that you might win or not. It's the crazy ass names. That no, come no, up hold on.
0: There was like one that was like called Full Determination or something. Even, uh, yeah, even... Known Agenda, Sainthood, Helium. I kind of like Helium. Mm-hmm. Soup and Sandwich rock your world <laughs> these are not names these are not
1: horse names oh, that's that's usually how they go for raising horse names they're always something asinine and nonsensical oh come on where's where's beverly hoof billy <laughs> do, do they usually do puns they usually have something like crazy like that like, no, like stupid remember- sandwich sounds very much like a horse name to me from my understanding of horse names
0: highly mo- motivated the dynamic
1: one See, those ones, you're like, you're too literal. Like, you're trying to imbue some special, like, extra juice into your horse by giving it a name yeah. that reflects power. And that's and that's lame. You need to go with something, like, totally weird and and crazy, I think. Like a king? Yeah,
0: that, that one's not hitting me right. <laughs> yeah. So I put down my money on Midnight Bourbon. Midnight Bourbon. That's a, that's a pretty good horse name, I think. It's got 13 to 1 odds. I've set it to a uh, place. Hmm.
1: I didn't know you did a horse, uh, horse racing, horse bets.
0: Uh, well, I don't. My uh, family has a little. Uh, we do a Kentucky Derby party, but I'm not there right now, so. Ah,
1: okay, that makes sense. Like, Just three dollars kind of, down. Kind of like the the Oscars party we did. Uh, yeah. Which we talked about last week.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's fun to do those little betting parties. You know, Again, as, as long as you don't make an obsession out of it or anything. No, 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 never. <laughs> Sad, sad you couldn't take any money home with us uh, last week there with the... I think I did the worst. Did yeah. I do the
0: worst in the battle? I, I think yep. you did
1: the worst. Uh, you 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 didn't bet on, on Ma Rainey's taking as many as, as it
0: did. No, you yeah. <laughs> didn't. I thought I was being super analytical and voting with cliche. Like, I put down Emma to win costumes because that's all that movie had. Mm-hmm. And then it lost to Ma Rainey.
1: Uh, it makes sense. I think... Uh didn't ma Rainey's like just come out a little bit before i'm pretty sure it it, it was it was more recent emma was like way Mm. earlier last year so that's the other thing you gotta consider is that the oscar voters have like a two-month like memory span Mm. yeah but yeah uh so for the the listeners out here who don't know uh this is, of course, the Twin Geeks cast, and uh, we're missing someone. We're down a Calvin this week.
0: Here instead we have David and our good friend, Murph.
1: Murph, are, are I'm here. <laughs> you may remember
0: me, me from my whirlwind appearance on the uh, the Daydream cast, now streaming on TwinGeeks.com.
1: Yes, or you, you were there for Leisure shoot, Suit Larry, Leisure Shoot. <laughs> I'm, well, I'm
0: you, messing it up. Leisure just like Shoot team. is what you do at the end of the game. <laughs> and
1: and i believe you're going back uh for their next show as well
0: oh yes i'll be i'll be appearing there next week uh to talk about spore so back to back double doses of mirth is this the most podcast appearances by someone who's not a contributor to the site
1: <laughs> uh it is so far uh which means mm-hmm. that we're going to get you writing something for the site i guess at some point oh, dear. <laughs> but no we're happy to have you regardless of you know any non-written content you've contributed you always provide a you know interesting perspective to things and are a good conversationalist and so very oh, yeah happy.
0: i do i do have a degree in film i do have yeah. a degree in film
1: that's that's more than any of us else have so uh I, I
0: learned screenwriting want, under john raymond that's
1: yeah that's that's way more than than we have so we're we're more prestigious by proxy i think by having you on here
0: oh yeah now i'll pull some strings i'll get him on the podcast <laughs>
1: that would be great i'm sure he would love to come talk about something. first cow yeah first cow maybe calvin's gonna kill me if we don't eventually get the first cow <laughs> <laughs> i thought you did a first cow episode nope nope uh just he's oh. talked about it a lot on the show <laughs> trouble trouble we'll, we'll get there though i promise calvin oh yeah so uh since we are a a movie podcast do you have anything murphy you've been watching lately to to bring with us to talk about
0: here uh, i've watched some recent flicks uh this morning i watched uh the new netflix release mitchell's versus the machines yes i've uh, been hearing about this one a little bit um some some more contentious
1: takes i know from from cal who couldn't be here so are, are you representing his his position here as well or
0: I think to a degree. So this movie had a lot, uh, sort of writing on it. It's the follow-up feature from into the spider verse, Mm. which, you know, a lot of people liked, um, it replicate, it does a lot of that visual style where it's sort of translating hand drawn 2d, uh, animation to a very 3d style and very stylized at that. There is so many visual effects going on in Mitchell's versus the machines at any time. Uh, it has a confirmed gay protagonist, uh, and that's very prominently displayed kind of throughout the movie because she has a a pride flag button on her shirt at all times, mm-hmm. and she ends the movie with a girlfriend. Uh, so that sort of got a lot of people uh, buzzing about it. Uh, I'm I'm sort of lukewarm on Mitchell's versus the machines.
1: All huh. right. It looks like, uh, now. just to clarify here, when, when you said it's from uh, the it follow-up to Spider-Verse, it's it's not the same directors. It's uh, just from the same production company?
0: Yes, it's the same production company. I believe it's the same writing team as the Lego movie.
1: Mm, let's see here. Uh, I don't see them correctly. It looks like it was written and directed by Michael Ryanda and Jeff Rowe, as opposed okay. to, wasn't it, uh, it as Lord and Miller did the lego movie
0: right okay yeah maybe they're just banking on it i just remember their names being displayed in the credits
1: yeah let's see because spy spider-verse was yeah it was written by well it was written by phil lord and uh directed by peter ramsey bob Persichetti, and rodney rothman
0: okay so
1: it's okay. I, I believe it's the same production company but not necessarily Yeah, it's the Sony same. Pictures. Okay, I
0: thought there was a lot more shared DNA. It, it looks like the,
1: the 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 art style does evoke the uh, Spider-Verse certainly. You know, so it looks like they're going in that same direction to like capitalize on that. But yeah, yeah definitely without the same people behind the scenes necessarily. Uh, I can see how it may not quite live up to those expectations.
0: Yeah, I'm sort of I'm sort of lukewarm on Mitchells versus the Machines. It's a a very nice visual splendor, especially since 3D animation has kind of gotten a little homogenized with the Disney Pixar look. Oh, yeah. Um, Everything is very stylized. Uh, It has great uh, character design, especially when it comes to uh, the silhouette work, which I will uh, get into when we talk about our main topic. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just... I think the screenplay could have gone a few more rounds uh, to cut some of the flack. It's a, uh, it's a near two hour movie and I think it could be done in 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: mm-hmm. Yeah. See that, that two hour runtime uh, is a little discouraging. Uh, you know, I think especially from like an animated film, if it's something you're wanting to show your kids as well, the attention span has got to be, you know that it's, it's a little lower threshold for them. So that 90 minute window is usually the the ideal that you're shooting for.
0: Yeah, I, I think we'll hold kids' attentions. Uh my main problem is that it's a it's a movie about family. It's about a family road trip. It's about a family fighting the robot apocalypse. Um And the story is primarily just between the father and the daughter. The daughter is moving off to college and she never really had a connection with her father and the robot apocalypse brings them together. The problem is there's also a mother and a son and they're, they don't really have character arcs. So they're kind of superfluous. Mm -hmm. I almost wish they weren't there, especially when partway through the movie, they bring on two more members of the family, which are uh, robots (laughs) so it just gets a bit just a bit busy uh i feel like some some adjustments could have been made there makes sense it looks like the the voice
1: uh cast here is pretty stacked with like uh abby jacobson danny mcbride and and maya rudolph and the the principal leads here with some good supporting Mm -hmm. uh talents and eric andre and uh and and such
0: Yeah, I think uh, the shocking thing is Danny McBride plays the dad and he sounds just like Seth Rogen. In fact, I didn't (laughs) know that was not Seth Rogen until you said that. Uh, I'm sure he's got plenty of practice doing an imitation. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, The the highlight of the movie is a sequence where they're uh, sort of infiltrating a mall. And since it's the robot uprising, uh, all the smart devices start attacking them. Uh, That's a very fun, very funny sequence, especially when they bring out the killer Furbies. (laughs) Uh, And the Furbies talk in their Furbish, but we have subtitles and they're saying stuff like the dark harvest will begin. Leave (laughs) no, leave no quarter. The pain only makes us stronger. It's, it's very funny. It's I I think just watch that sequence on YouTube and uh it, it feels rude to say but kind of leave the rest of the film aside because yeah, I'm not too hot on it and I wish I was. I wish uh I really wish I feel like this could compete for best animated feature because more than likely it's going to go to a uh, Pixar's offering this year.
1: Mhm. It's uh did you have an opinion on that with the the who was nominated this last year? I know, lot people had lots of affection for like Wolfwalkers as kind of yeah. a, an actual competition for Soul, but also like this you know the, both Soul and Onward were nominated. And in, 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 in any year where Onward would usually be nominated and just take the you know the uh, prize, just you know by virtue of being Pixar, uh, mm-hmm. it, it may have had a chance of being outdone by something like Wolfwalkers, but because people really did like and connect with soul. I think
0: uh, it, it was a wash. For yeah. Uh, I'm not too mad about soul winning. Um, maybe because I haven't seen Wolfwalkers yet. Ah. Uh, it's just sort of disappointing in that very predictable Oscars way where the studio project wins the more independent uh, thing that's trying new things only really gets the nomination. Mm-hmm. Uh Especially since Wolf Walkers is, and Cartoon Saloon in general, is still upholding 2D animation and really pushing what that medium can do. Uh, and Soul ultimately is kind of just another Pixar offering. It's good, it's good, but it's not different. Mm-hmm. And, I,
1: so, I you remember, know, different uh, is good. We were talking, looking back at, like you know back in like the the 2010 oscars uh for animated film and it was really stacked when you had like uh, up ultimately one of course cuz you know mm-hmm. pixar but you know the competition was like coraline and fantastic mr fox and princess and the frog and secret of oh, the yeah. and it's just like damn that's like i can't imagine a more stacked category in that case you know
0: yeah and then some years you get happy feet 2 Ferdinand yeah. the bull boss baby <laughs> And it's,
1: it's, it's amazing how some of those, especially those last two you named, how they can even like, like they just have to meet a certain quota, I guess. I don't know. But, and and it's sounding like mm-hmm. the Mitchells and the machines uh, is going to be kind of more in that ladder for, for at least from, from your uh, position here. I'm seeing yeah. a lot more I mean, if it, positive uh, takes on it. it. Generally it seems this is the consensus currently.
0: If it does win, um, I won't be mad because it's uh you know, it's a type of, stylistic animation we don't get a lot of outside of St- sony's recent offerings mm-hmm. um i i always felt that the lego movie should have won best animated feature the year it came out yeah
1: i i think i agree with that i can't recall what else came out but it was definitely one of the more impressive movies uh of that year i remember just just being really taken in by it it was like mm-hmm. a, both as a story and an animated project and yeah. you know, the fact that you could make something so commercial, like literally commercial, you know, so like, you know, fun- functional and, and moving as a movie in general. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there wasn't really that much cynicism to it when walking in seemed like it was going to be a, a cash grab. Yeah, what about you? What have you seen recently? Well, this is, this is usually the part of my show as the avid listener you are know uh, where I mm-hmm. talk about a documentary that, that I've seen. Oh, yeah. I like to highlight. David's
0: Documentary Minute. Yes.
1: <laughs> uh, this week, uh, I didn't have time to watch a new one yet, since we were recording this a little earlier than usual. But I do have uh, a favorite that I can uh, dust off and talk about here. And uh, I happen to have you brought to my attention again, because as I usually do on the first of month, I check what's leaving the Criterion channel and other streaming services Mm -hmm. and such. And uh, I noticed that what I'm gonna say is my favorite documentary currently that I've seen is is taking off. So uh, I'm giving people a month uh, head warning here to check out uh, Dawson City, Frozen Time. Have you heard of this one? Okay, any relation to Dawson's Creek? no <laughs>
0: okay so
1: uh dawson city was a, a gold brush town in uh a part of, a upper part of canada and um at the end of the 1920s 1929 uh that well they were also the end of a chain of of films of, of, of the theaters there like they would ship the various films through you know uh, down the the line of the various routes they had throughout the country and dawson city was a final stop for a lot of these and the studios basically just said, we don't want to pay to have these sent back to us. You keep them, you do whatever with them. Hmm. And so they accumulated over time, this vast amount of, you know, feature films, film reels, you know, uh, shorts and all sorts of things. Uh, and at ni- in the end of 1929, uh, they just decided at one point to like get rid of them. They, they buried them in an, underneath a pool that they were that was you know no longer functioning that you know in a uh, it was like a old kind of like a YMCA kind of deal Mm. um and so they buried them
0: under the pool
1: yeah yeah it was buried with with the pool the whole structure was buried underneath um you know the whole thing was demolished in the 1970s a construction you know project that was coming through the area happened upon this swath of films and they were all largely preserved because they'd been buried under the permafrost for you know 50 years and so the the documentary is is not only an archive of all of the footage that was you know uh, saved from here Uh, it's also a history of the town of dawson city. And also a reflection of the silent film format, which I think is kind of like the artistic key that really brought all of the idea of it together. It's told mostly through uh, intertitles is, is one of the key components used to convey the information of the story of Dawson City. And it replicates silent film in that manner. And also through its use of music uh, throughout the, there. And it's this really moving uh portrait of the city, the evolution of it, um, how it, it reflected at the time. And there's like interesting anecdotes that come up, like, uh, you know, how this town kind of brushed shoulders with uh, the famous silent film director, William Desmond Taylor, who famously was murdered uh, in a scandal um, that yeah. kind of like flared up the, and, and caused the, the birth of the production code, along with uh, several other things like the, the Fatty Arbuckle rape trial around the same time period and so his old
0: fatty arbuckle rape trial yeah uh
1: so so desmond taylor's stay in dawson city is kind of like this you know interesting anecdote you know that kind of goes along with the the footage that they're showcasing this entire time here and a lot of the the material itself is like heavily damaged or like only like some seconds of it survive and and they highlight like certain films in which you know we're able to be preserved through this discovery in this particular find and like the very the small bits of information that that are saved from from this very impromptu discovery uh and you know preservation of these films and it's I I think a very incredible and artistic articulation of of the uh discovery and the history and weaving it together with the silent film format itself it's just this very neat and beautiful bow that really uh, speaks to the the importance and the majesty of preservation in particular. Mm.
0: Yeah, no, yeah. I definitely know film preservation is an issue. Is this from? Uh, it's a good thing they buried them because isn't film stock from that time period highly flammable? Yes, it's a uh, nitrate film. Uh, so, oh.
1: and and so that stuff like not only will it easily burn up, it will burn down everything like there there are so many cases where lots of films have been destroyed from you know uh film fires uh yeah. and you know and there's lots of films out there that are just they're gone because yeah you know, all the known copies were destroyed you know very unexpectedly you know when something like that happens and but you know there are there's always people out there looking for copies and we're always discovering you know films like even in this manner in these crazy ways uh you know one of the more famous cases of course is uh the the finding of like 50 minutes of footage worth of um, metropolis in like oh yeah I, i've never seen that yeah 2008 or something like that and so now we have 98 of the film preserved and it was just it was found in a vault in um uh, argentina i think it was i gotta <laughs> i gotta hate it if i'm wrong but <laughs> and and so now like even now there's a uh an expedition being taken out by someone to go into uh Brazil to look for the lost footage from Orson Welles' uh, The Magnificent Ambersons, which he had a work print of when he was down there uh, mm. filming a documentary. Um, and that's supposedly where where it, and it could turn up and maybe, you know, crazier things have happened uh, and it would be incredible. But, you know, I think that Dawson City, Frozen Time is a great reflection of that that need for preservation because so much is lost and, and how incredible it can be in this kind of like, historical happenstance that you come across and you see these interesting things that are saved because like i said it's, it's not necessarily just the films that they're coming across like the you know the comedies or whatever that were made by the studios but like yeah. film reels and stuff from the 1920s and seeing how that reflects of the the time and such like that and there's some interesting stuff like w- one of them is like uh there's there's footage of one of uh, the uh, an infamous um uh, Major League Baseball game, which which was like rigged from the uh, the Black Sox, uh, is that oh. there's like a piece of footage that was found in the the Dawson City find that uh, that wasn't anywhere else. So just really yeah. cool stuff like that, and and I'm I'm very taken by that kind of subject and the melding of that with the the silent film storytelling aspect, just I think really does wonders for me in particular. So catch catch that if you can before it
0: leaves the Criterion Channel if you have it. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm a big advocate for uh, preservation, especially preservation of things that are not that great. Because um, <laughs> I think I, I, I think it's important that we record like not only our great, successful, innovative films, but also our mediocre stuff, because otherwise we make the trap of only remembering the good, great stuff. Yeah. And not that there was, you know, just as much crap being produced uh yeah, that's that's I, definitely a big argument
1: like nowadays when we talk about like the inundation of like just you know shitty same marvel movies or action movies or com- yeah. bad comedies or whatever and you know people often don't like sit back and reconsider it's like well yeah these you know five classics came out in 1957 you know in pretty sequential well, what but, else came out yeah <laughs> did you see all the other shit that they made <laughs> mm-hmm. and and i've definitely seen my my fair share of uh old shit <laughs> oh yeah definitely but no I, I agree with the idea that the the preservation of that stuff even still is important and uh, particularly uh, as well as a collector uh you know i i am always enthused by seeing the new restorations that are being taken under and even you know the releasing of all these crazy things there's labels out there that will release like the utter shittiest worthless films and like <laughs> that were shot on like vhs even and like in high oh. pristine transfers you know like <laughs> but it's wonderful it's oh, yeah. wonderful that they're doing uh that kind of work yeah all just... that, yeah all that stuff should be saved for posterity and because there is a there's an audience for everything I, yeah, I, well just
0: I, remembering that life exists i think is very important because when archaeologists a hundred years in the future look back what is going to rise to the top what are they going to infer about us and it's going to be what we decided to help preserve mm-hmm. and it's also ultimately
1: like um you know the things that we do value and what we recognize is important or crucial they they change based on a variety of, of factors over the years and one of them is availability and so you know something that may have been you know not well received at the time or has bad reputation uh will Mm -hmm. often get a a revival and reevaluation and usually that's done through preservation efforts you know when you when you see a lot of films nowadays being brought back into the conversation it's typically because someone has taken the efforts to restore it release it put it out there again get the word out that it's worth recognizing yeah and and you know that certainly should be done, you know, you hope that can be done for every movie, everything out there, you know, particularly when you look at what is lost and what we don't have anymore, because you can't make any judgments about those things. You can only speculate.
0: Uh, David, I know you're a pretty outspoken critic of Mank. <laughs> uh,
1: a little bit, yes. I've been known yeah, okay. to, to say so, a word, or two.
0: <laughs> so I have a pitch for you. Okay. Mank but with Muppets. <laughs> okay. Is,
1: is this a scenario where it's like, you know, you, you see those things where it's like replace everyone, but one person with a Muppet or the other way around where you make one person a Muppet and everyone else is normal. Or is it just everyone is a
0: Muppet? Um, I think if it's mank, it would be best that only Gary Oldman is the only human. I
1: I think it would also be interesting the other way around, but I mean, the movie also kind of borders on that already with his kind of like dumb, drunken ramblings and stuff. Like maybe he's already a Muppet. Muppet. Yeah. He's not going to be that much different. It's already pretty cartoony. So everyone else being a Muppet, I, I do like that idea actually, the more I think about it, him like I'm thinking about a scene where he's like, like, like he's, he's bickering with Orson Welles or something. And you just got like a big, like Sweetums Orson Welles or something barking Hmm. back at him. I think
0: I think Orson Welles, I, I don't know why, but I feel like for comedy's sake, you would have Fozzie play Orson Welles. Fozzie? Fozzie is Orson Welles? Yeah. Hey, Maybe, I can kind of see that. Or Gonzo, because he's the great artist.
1: <laughs> Gonzo doesn't have that much of rage to him, I don't know, you know. That, that is a great question, though. Why, why, uh... I know I, Orson Welles did like one thing with the Muppets, but I kind
0: of, I would have loved he to got, see, Yeah, he if, got the If cameo. you take the film as canon. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, he, he, got, he, he gave them their rich and famous contract, which allowed it, them to create the Muppet Show, which it, is our <laughs> topic, right, David? Yeah, indeed it is. We are talking
1: about the Muppet Show this week, the original Muppet Show from the, the 1970s. What's
0: it, 75 to 79, I that think? That cinematic... 1,040-minute runtime (laughs) movie, The Muppet Show. Yeah,
1: uh, we've talked about TV shows before, so this isn't, Mm -hmm. like, like totally off-base. We've talked about Stranger Things and Animaniacs, but we don't usually have our first guest on for a TV show, so this is quite quirky and different, but... Or if you're also quite quirky and different. So I think it's fitting. Oh, yes. Much like the Muppets themselves. Yes. I think this is a very fitting topic for introduction. And you are also a de facto Muppet
0: expert, from my understanding. I've, I've, I've dabbled in uh, Muppetology. I think, I think I've, often, all... uh, I've often gone uh, on one of those websites where you can get your own Muppet made for a price of like $120. <laughs> and I've thought to myself, he's going to be purple. He's going to have a bowler hat and his name is going to be Blimey. <laughs> I love it. I can see it
1: perfectly. Yes, I think we all, I think most everyone in the world has, has a, a deep affection for the Muppets in some way or another, but not necessarily with the Muppets show. And I think part mm-hmm. of that's just become it because it just now became available again to a, a wide public for, for accessibility for the first time, probably since syndication,
0: mm, uh, yeah, because through uh, through
1: Disney Plus, yeah, because Disney Plus had it. It was certainly it's the first time that I got to watch the Muppet Show in any kind of full capacity. I uh, maybe have mm. seen bits of it here and there over times, but because it didn't air really when I was watching television,
0: and uh, yeah, it, it it aired late night on the Disney Channel in the late nineties. Mm -hmm. And that was my first exposure.
1: I know it was uh, was basically like a cultural institution in the the 70s. It really blew up and obviously paved the way for Muppet Mania to come. But yeah, the the movies were really my first introduction. And the first one in particular being Muppet Treasure Island. That was the one I had the most affection for growing up. And I'm sure some of it is just because of Tim Curry.
0: Oh, Tim Curry's a live-action Muppet. Uh, Tim Curry could read the phone book. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Muppet Treasure Island. I actually have only seen a few times. Uh, mainly just to watch that great opening song, Shiver My Timbers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I went back and rewatched it not too long ago,
1: and uh, it was not as good. It was not mm-hmm. as good as I had remembered. Uh, mostly because the kid who plays Jim is is bad. But uh, yes, the- that I do remember. But you know you've got a really great comedic duo in Gonzo and uh, Rizzo, uh, kind of going through the whole movie there. And I, I think it also helped develop the my love for for my favorite Muppet, which is uh, Sam the Eagle. Oh, Sam is your favorite Muppet? Yes, it's an it's an unexpected okay. pick, isn't it? I don't think people would pin pin us Sam as my favorite Muppet here. I mean, you're I,
0: kind of bird-like, so it <laughs> makes sense. Oh, you sound uh, like my I'm, fiance now. <laughs> I, I, I'm a Gonzo man yeah uh, I mean Gonzo's a great
1: one he's, he, he's a, perfect for all situations I think
0: Gonzo, gonzo has a lot of pathos uh, especially uh, in the show itself there's a great episode where he is quote unquote leaving to go star in Bollywood mm. and uh, he, he goes on stage and he gives a really soulful rendition of My Way which, by Frank Sinatra. Yeah,
1: Which episode was that? I don't think I caught that one. I did not watch all the episodes in preparation for this,
0: but I watched quite quite a good selection. That one has... Uh, don't remember her name because she's not famous today. <laughs> um, it's rude Oof. to say. Oof. <laughs> it's true, though. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, especially when you look at the first season, there's a lot of people you would not immediately recognize uh there's definitely
1: a lot of names that I don't know that well. Some some hmm. names I might be slightly familiar with. I'm like, I know the name Florence Henderson, but I don't know from where.
0: Yeah, it wasn't until uh until they had a real oddball guest star in the form of a uh, professional ballet dancer Rudolf Nareyev mm-hmm. on. Did you watch the Rudopnarab Nurev- episode?
1: I did. I actually ended up finding that one to be one of my favorites. I made a list that I'll get to later on in the episode here, but uh I, I was very taken by like I, I found myself taken most by episodes where the guests were just willing to be silly as fuck. They were willing to just oh yeah get down and do the Muppet things and do silly shit. Like and and the fact that he sings a Fred Astaire song too, and he does the oh. bit with the cane at the end he does the whole top hat white tail and tails bit like that that was gunning straight from my heart. All. yes that's that's the stair bit he does that scene. oh is it <laughs> yes i never knew that yeah so from top yeah. hat that's where the conception of it is. he used and he does like it was it was an idea that he had in his like at 4 a.m one morning fred woke up and started practicing it but basically like he uses the taps to simulate the the gunfire shot and then at the end he does like a rapid tap and it's like a Tommy gun and he shoots all the guys down. And so Rudolf narayev replicated that in a silly bit. And he's not a professional singer and that's part of what makes it great.
0: No, English <laughs> is not his first language. Uh, <laughs> but I love, yeah, I love so- the gusto
1: with which he approaches it with, and he's just going full on into doing this bit. And I'm like, that man is living a dream right now.
0: <laughs> yeah. So when Rudolf narayev got on the show, uh, that's when people really started paying attention to being like, hey, why is this world-renowned professional ballet dancer going on the uh, the Felt Puppet program? <laughs> so- and then suddenly, everyone wanted to be on the Muppet Show. Uh, and then you start getting people like Steve Martin, Liza Minnelli, Jonathan Winters, Eventually yep. down the line, they got in uh, the cast of Star Wars with Mark Hamill, who's having the time of his life because he's a huge Muppet fan.
1: Ah, that, that was one I, I skipped for some reason. Uh, and I should have gotten to that one sooner, but that was a good one, I'm guessing. Uh,
0: yeah, it, it's good. It's good when Mark Hamill and not Luke Skywalker is on screen, which is something uh... they, they have fun with. Uh, Luke is often saying, this is too silly. Let me get my cousin Mark to do it.
1: That's that's a little corny. Sometimes that happens with the show. There's, there could be a hit or miss
0: ratio, but it's just because Star Wars, a new, well, Star Wars before it was ever ever called A New Hope had just come out. And so it was still treated with a level of seriousness Mm -hmm. that I don't think the brand would now reflect that makes sense well maybe we should back
1: it up a second and talk about what the muppet show is to begin with and how it started i think that would be a recap for people who again maybe haven't got around to it yet maybe you haven't seen the show
0: or don't even know what a muppet is yeah i I guess uh do do we have a textbook Uh, definition we can break out (laughs) uh it's a portmanteau of marionette and puppet yeah bam uh so so a quick Muppet history lesson. Uh, pretty much everyone associates Muppets with the work of Jim Henson. It's kind of his brainchild. He did a lot of innovations to the uh, puppet format. Um, pretty much got his start doing public access TV shows. Uh, the show called Salmon Friends, which I've never seen. Um, it was just these little five minute puppet sketches that would air between programs. And uh, because he was a home economics major, he really knew his way around a craft station. Um, And at that time, most puppets were made out of wood, Um, especially ventriloquist puppets. They're made of wood, they're pretty stiff, didn't have a lot of range of emotion, at most their mouth would move, sometimes you'd get some action with the eyelids and be able to turn the head. So most of the expression was done through the gesture and the performance itself. Uh, Jim started making his puppets out of felt and foam rubber, which allowed for a greater range of motion as well as a more textured feel. You could get fuzzy puppets. You could get more animalistic looking puppets. And then through the manipulation of the hand, you could get different expression, more accurate mouth movements. So it actually matched up with what they're saying, the lip flaps. And his other big innovation was removing uh, sort of the stage setting that most puppet shows had. Um, Most puppet shows at the time were done on a proscenium arch, that very classic where it's just like a box. The puppet performer is hiding underneath the box and they just hold the puppet up and do their bit. He had the thought, why don't we get rid of the arch and just film it in such a way that the performer is off camera. Therefore it looks like the puppet, the character belongs in the environment. It can move around, it can interact with things. It's not bound to this stage. And that proved uh hugely successful and through uh word of mouth on Sam and friends, he landed a gig on the Jimmy Dean show where he brought out uh, really one of the first Muppets, which is Rolf the Dog, who was Jimmy Dean's, uh, ostensibly he was referred to as a sidekick. He got second billing next to Jimmy Dean. They did a lot of duets. They did a lot of sketches together. Hmm. And uh, that was where Jim Henson's star really started rising. In fact, he always thanked Jimmy Dean for giving him that, um, that exposure. And then from there, he... Jim started theorizing, well, it's a, I can do a variety show with just my puppets. Um, And he wanted to prove that there was more interest in puppet performance than just for kids. So he went on this hot new program you may have heard of called Saturday Night Live. I I Uh, believe I'm familiar with it, yes. (laughs) Yeah, so Jim Henson's on the entire first season of Saturday Night Live. Um, these, set, these sketches called Land of Gorch, which takes place on like an alien planet of monsters. There's a king, a queen, and a wizard. They're very, very bad. <laughs> uh, and they were intentionally made to be very bad, uh, almost as a sabotage. Because at the time, Saturday Night Live sketches could only be written by Saturday Night Live staff. And Jim Henson was considered a guest performer. So he could not write his own material. And the Saturday Night Live writers did not have great respect for puppets. Mm -hmm. I think it was John Belushi who was quoted as saying, I don't write for felt. (laughs) So they intentionally sabotaged Land of Gorge by writing just these awful, profane sketches. There's a bit about like inventing a sex toy. There's burp music it's it's pretty rough and bad hmm. but uh through saturday night live jim met more performers i believe he met carol spinney there who would later go on to be big bird and carol spinney said hey i've heard of this program being worked on by the learning company called sesame street and they could use some puppet performers and uh, Jim was brought onto Sesame Street, which, uh, shockingly, was not conceived with puppet characters in mind.
1: That, that does seem strange.
0: I, I was always under the perception that like he kind of spearheaded that. No. Um, so there was a Sesame Street pilot that was done, which was done with characters in makeup. And uh, these, it had a few puppet characters, but they weren't Muppet characters. Um, And then Jim was brought on, and he came up with uh, Grover, Oscar the Grouch, Big Bird, and they cut a new pilot with these characters interacting with the kids, because the kids could more easily interact with puppets than they could adults. And that proved to be the big success. And basically, that's where Jim star started to rise even more. Uh, Now he's on this highly successful children's program. He's got this clout going. Uh, He's got all these loyal followers. So he decides to make the big jump to having his own show. And he pitched it around to NBC. They said, hey, you're the Land of Gorch guy. Get out. (laughs) Um, Ouch. So he went across the pond to uh, the British Broadcasting Company and said, hey, do you want to produce the Muppet show? And they said, Hey, you're the Sesame street guy. Of course we'll do this. Mm -hmm. So it may be shocking to learn, but pretty much the entirety of the Muppet shows run was done in London. Yeah. I believe filmed in uh, L street studios. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: And so they produced two pilots. Uh, The first was called the Muppet Valentine special which used a few well-known Muppets, Kermit's in there, who was uh, well-known from Sesame Street, as well as a series of coffee commercials Jim Henson had done. And Rolf was there and they had a guest star. I don't remember who the guest star is, because again, it's one of those performers from the time period who is not whose name has not survived. Mm-hmm. And it's very, the Muppet Valentine special is very twee. It's very cute. Uh, it's not really done in the style of the Muppet Show. It's more done in the style of one of those, like Bing Crosby's Christmas special, where it's like, "Oh, my neighbor's going to come over, and my neighbor's David Bowie, <laughs> and we're going to sing a musical number." Um, mm-hmm. It and then the second pilot they produced, which was meant to show more of the "quote unquote" mature side of the Muppets was called The Muppet Show Sex and Violence, which I made you watch.
1: Yes, uh, we sat down and watched that one together. And uh, despite the rather uh, aggressive name there and the kind of explicit <laughs> implication, it was
0: very underwhelming, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, Sex and Violence, which is what I have to call it because that's the name of the program. Yeah, uh, it starts with them... Blowing up sex and violence. That's the beginning. Is it the Yeah, it's the end of sex and violence on TV. Because yeah. now it's all puppets. It's a bit, bit
1: of a misnomer, but...
0: Um... Uh, but it has a lot of the features that The Muppet Show would later adopt. Namely having a backstage element. Mm-hmm. Uh, various sketches. And uh, sort of a... The plot line having to revolve around producing The Muppet Show rather than just being the Muppet show itself. Mm -hmm. But with a very different cast of characters, Uh, the slug man whose name escapes me, I believe his name is Simon, uh, was the host for the program, still voiced by Jim Henson, a very different character to Kermit, much more laid back sam the eagle was going to be a main cast member which i'm sure you were tickled about i i was but again like since the
1: the show itself kind of faltered i was disappointed to see him not not really shine as much i still love sam the eagle though who i I should say as well uh sam is operated by frank oz who's like the the Mm -hmm. second second in command the lieutenant there to jim henson throughout all of this and frank frank oz i think is a a national treasure for even beyond his his puppet uh, oh his yeah puppet
0: even work. beyond his pup, uh puppet work just great director yeah a great knives out cameo <laughs> <laughs> he
1: pops up yeah uh,
0: carol oz uh carol oz, frank oz carol spinney mm-hmm. um were kind of jim henson's one and twos uh once you figure once you tune into their voices it's very easy to tell which character is performed by who yeah
1: and, and Oz especially has lots of prominence, not only being, like, Sam, of course, my favorite, but, you know, voicing Miss Piggy and Fozzie, uh, you know, mm-hmm. who are, like, the, the two next most prominent Muppets next to Kermit on the, and on the show. Yeah. Even more so than Wolf, I would say.
0: Uh, yeah, Rolf really got sort of downgraded. Um, I'm still always happy to see a Rolf sketch because they're always consistently hilarious. Except
1: for like uh, I don't know, I don't know the the veterinarians hospital ones, they're
0: they're they're amusing. I wouldn't say they're hilarious. I don't know. That's my favorite recurring sketch. Oh. Uh, yeah, so so sex and violence gotta pick up. Um, they also made this really, really, really very funny pitch video. Uh, that's like this Muppet broadcaster selling them the pitch, and he's saying all this crazy stuff <laughs> like, oh, the gods shall look down from heaven and say, let's give them a 40, 40 dollar grant. And it's like this picture of the conception of man, except God's holding out a sack of money and Adam is Kermit accepting it. <laughs> That's terrific. It's And so the Muppet show got greenlit and the rest of kind of his history. Uh, five seasons and three movies, at least under Jim Henson's watch. Mm hmm. It's it's kind of surprising that
1: it got oh well, I guess not that surprising it got greenlit with those pilots which are very you know milk toast but yeah. I uh, think just at the time it was very different yeah and and of course like you said earlier the prestige of like Sesame Street backing him and such really helps mm-hmm. you know sell particularly with the BBC who were just ready to jump on board but the the better stru- the, the structure that the show had with its actual conception with the recurring guests and the actual like putting on of it it's a, it's a very interesting blend that works that kind of pulls from various kind of uh earlier like like base forms of uh, entertainment. you know like uh, mm-hmm. there's lots of like vaudeville influence on the muppet show which is like a really oh, interesting yeah. Element that kind of revives the kind of fusing with the more sketch oriented snl modern style that you have mm-hmm. going on at the same time and i think that's part of what makes it so interesting because the, uh, and i think it matches really well with the kind of this the 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 list of guests that they they kind of uh employ for it because it also varies quite a bit i i, I kind of thought about this as well when i was watching this i was like who would you get nowadays for like a Muppet, like if you did a modern version of the Muppet Show, like who would you get to host it? And I don't think you would get uh, as wide a range of performers as you do here, because mm-hmm. not only you're getting like up and coming, you know, talents in the 1970s, like you know Steve Martin, like Bernadette Peters here, but you're also getting these, you know, major throwbacks in the in the likes of uh, Gene Kelly, and you're getting like Ethel Merman. <laughs> You know, as yeah. well in episodes, and so to have these like really like pioneering, early, you know, early 20th century, uh, you know, stars on the show with the likes of like Sylvester Stallone, you know, is another. Oh example. yeah,
0: Sylvester Stallone, fresh off Rocky. Yeah, very first thing he did was the Muppet Show. <laughs> <laughs> and and so it, it, and that really
1: interesting blend of old and and new talents, you know, I think kind of mirrors the. The style of the show's comedy as well. And, and I think that's part of what makes it such a, a resounding success.
0: Yeah. it's They cast a very wide net. There's a, When you get down to it, there's a lot of very different sketches on The Muppet Show. There's stupid pun-em-ups like Veterinarian's Hospital, yeah. where they're just trying to say as many puns as they can in rapid succession. But then there's also very slow, very... Uh, emotional music numbers. Mm -hmm. There's um, one where Statler and Waldorf uh, just sing. It was a very good year to themselves. And it's, it's, um, it's small, it's emotional, it's great. Um, And I think that was the appeal of it being a primetime slot and entertains both kids and adults. It's an all age ranges, uh, program. In a way, a lot of Henson's work prior really wasn't. It was kind of always to one extreme or the other, never for that middle ground.
1: I think it really uh, holds up too. Uh, there, There's definitely some like contemporary references that'll probably go over a lot of people's heads, uh, but mm-hmm. even for the stars you don't know, most of the the comedy is still, you know, really universal and, and relevant and not too much outdated. There are a couple episodes that that kind of throw you up the the disney you know there might be an issue with this you know kind of representation mm-hmm. warning but even the ones that it did have i'm like mm, this isn't like the worst thing i've seen nobody's doing blackface at least so that's no
0: at at most you'll get like a a middle eastern looking oil chic puppet speaking gibberish yeah th- um, there's, there's one episode where
1: they i, d- I didn't watch uh, so it was i think it was the was it Kenny Rogers one where, where they have them go drilling for oil in, in his dressing room. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which that's the one I'm referring to, which I think is also just like, I like the absurdity of that, despite the racial element to it. Like just mm-hmm. that there would be oil in his dressing room. I think that's yeah, funny. on the
0: second floor.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I think that's that in and of itself is funny, but obviously, you know, with the, the elements that may not play as well, but r- relatively uh, you know, wise. I don't think it would perturb most
0: anyone today watching it. It's,
1: no, it's mostly... I think
0: I think Muppets holds up pre- the Muppet Show holds yeah. up pretty darn well. Um, I think that it just kind of speaks to the timelessness of the thing itself. Like the Muppet Show has really great character design, and I think that's the sort of the core. Feature to its lasting impact. Uh I brought this up when talking about Mitchell's prince of the machines. Uh the silhouette of the character is always important in character design so that they can be recognized just as like an outline. Mm-hmm. And most Muppets uh do that. Most Muppets you can recognize as a glance. You can tell what they're about, what their voice sounds like. Yeah. Uh, it's they all have very really-
1: distinct characters distinct personalities and that really stick with you not just like the main cast but like I said you know I said Sam the Eagle who's like a third string Muppet you know typically mm-hmm. is is my favorite he's the one that stands out to me the most and you know I think everyone's got you know those those various uh additional ones those you know uh those side Muppets yeah the for me it's Uncle characters. Deadly yeah and Uncle Deadly's a great one I think he his very first appearance I think
0: was fittingly with Vincent Price right um yes it was vincent price uh he did make a brief cameo early on um with ethel merman mm. but it was just for like a single song number mm-hmm. um yes i love uncle deadly i love his design i love it's, his backstory. it's a more intricate
1: design than most of the other muppets and he has a really great malevolence to him i know for, for me the character really came like i i first kind of got familiar with him with the 2011
0: muppets movie where he had like an actual I, yes. prominent role. i was so tickled that he got the big hero moment in that movie yes <laughs> that... he doesn't want to be a muppet <laughs> i i i have a great affection for the 2011 movie as well yeah i think uh i think the 2011 movie is probably as good a revival as it could have gotten especially since it taps into uh what I think is sort of the core of the Muppets and that's that underdog aspect mm-hmm. that that underdog artist aspect, especially um, that's something that the original Muppet movie really showed um, that it's about. Well, maybe maybe there isn't a market for a Muppet show. Maybe we're all just fools uh, running against the wind. Uh, But in the end, it's their heart that shines through. And that's what in the movie and kind of in real life with Jim Henson's story, uh, the effort pays off. And it turns out, yeah, there is a market, there is a fan base, there is a community that can be built around this sort of thing. And I think that's kind of the appeal of the Muppets itself. It's the, it's the dare to be strange, dare to be stupid Mm -hmm. um, thing. And,
1: and they've really carved out like kind of this uh, immortal legacy for themselves. Even, even from just the show, you could see really this, this clear and cohesive, you know, image for the, the identity of the Muppets is just, it's fully formed here in this mm-hmm. show and will continue to go on even after uh, Henson's, you know, kind of uh, tragic early death, you know, yeah. it, the, the fact that the show was able to, or, or that the, the Muppets themselves Brand. were able to go on.
0: Uh, Yeah, infinitely. There were some, there were some rough patches. I think the uh, mid to late two thousands, before the twenty eleven revival, you had stuff like Muppet Wizard of Oz, which is not good. It has a gratuitous um, Quentin Tarantino cameo. (laughs) Uh, Rough. (laughs) Uh, And then I even, I even liked the, the Muppets. um, That one season, NBC Office rip off (laughs) i I haven't i haven't given
1: it the test yet i'm not like an office fan i'm not a big fan of like the style of the show it was it was kind of a big put off to me um so i I imagine i'm not going to like it but maybe the presence of muppets will change my mind have you watched the the new one that they put on disney plus yet muppets now
0: i i have not yet uh i've sort of been holding off because i'm not a big fan of the new voice of kermit Mm. Uh, i think it loses a lot of the uh the frogginess uh a lot of people have said that's just a dude talking <laughs> <laughs> and i kind of agree having listened to uh some of the clips when when did did
1: he just take over for this new show or is
0: this yeah like... he just took over oh, okay um
1: yeah because i'm so... not i'm not sure who was doing I, I should know the name of the person who's doing kermit since henson's death but because uh, I've always found, at least him in, in a lot of the subsequent movies and such, has been fairly seamless. You know, I, I haven't noticed too much the difference. He, he, or at least he embodies the character of Kermit in a way that I don't find distracting or disorienting. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, Matt Vogel is the current. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was previously Steve Whitmere, who did it from the 90s to the 2016. Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: Yeah, so uh, I, I think the the movie track record they have is is a little bumpy in places, certainly, um, you know, to, to be expected. But the the show I found pretty consistently qualitative throughout, um, you know, with a with a litany of episodes that just that really took me, yeah. and grabbed me. <laughs> do you do you have uh, some favorites you I would do. like to list off? I do. I have a list. So. My my number five, I did a top five here. My number five okay, is, okay. was Rudolf Nureyev. So since we already talked about that one a little bit, I'm going to swap it out here and talk about my alternate five, which was Gene Kelly. Uh, Gene mm-hmm. Kelly was the last one they filmed, I think, entirely, but the first one of season five. Uh,
0: yes, that's correct. It, um, was, it was going to kind of be a send-off for the show. It feels like um, it. but I believe uh, there was some discussion of they was season five was kind of when the Muppet brand was on the way out. Jim Henson wanted to experiment with some new uh, formats. He wanted to do uh, dark crystal. He wanted to do labyrinth. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it was decided. and, And plus the, the ratings weren't quite there. So it was decided for season five, they needed like to start with a big name and they went with Gene Kelly.
1: Oh, it's a great big name, of course, and I think uh, he's he's terrific on it. And I loved seeing him. And uh, they they do do a bit that they do with a couple other people throughout, where like the the gag for most of the time is that the star isn't actually wanting to be there for the episode. Mm-hmm. Like he's like, "No, I'm yeah. just here to watch." And then like it doesn't play as well because like I think the show is often at its best when when you're getting the performers in. Or at least yeah. know, if the performer is truly exemplary. So, like when your whole bit is built around, they're not actually here to do it. <laughs> it's not always successful. But I think when they do get Gene Kelly to perform, particularly towards the end, it's it's pretty magical and fantastic. The, the various songs <laughs> they do is they're trying to get him to do Singing in the Rain. Everyone's singing around. Yeah. And then, and then they do get him to. And at the end, I was I was particularly touched by him. Coming back onto the set. I'm pretty sure it's the actual Sing in the Rain set. It is. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. It it looked exactly like it. I'm like, you didn't rebuild this. It's this is it. And so that little kind of like trip down memory lane and that that, you know, uh reuniting there, I think uh was very, you know, it was a very sentimental moment. And it did feel, like I said, like a a good conclusion in a way, if not necessarily for the Muppet Show, then kind of like this bookend for Gene Kelly's career there. So Mm. That was really nice. I liked that episode a lot. Uh, I found myself drawn by a lot of the musical performers more than like some of the comedians and stuff. Like, yeah. like yeah, i like, I like Zero Mostel, but uh, you know, I like a lot of the more, oh, I guess he's also, you know, he's a Broadway singer, but like more of the more singer singers. So, so you'll see that more so on yeah. this list here. Number four for
0: me was, uh, I wrote Harry Belafonte. Okay, okay, number four. Four, yes. Uh, the, these, because you know that was Jim Henson's favorite episode.
1: I do. I also they played it at his funeral. David, <laughs> you don't have to guilt me. Uh, this is your favorite as well, isn't it?
0: Uh, I I love the Harry, Harry Belafonte episode. I am I am generally pretty cliche with my opinions, and I agree Harry Belafonte's episode is the best the show got. <laughs> uh, I was uh, they did in fact uh, Harry Belafonte performed at Jim Henson's funeral. Um and they played Turn the World Around as the last song. Um they did kind of a medley of songs for his funeral. If you ever want to ball your eyes out, look up a uh, Big Bird singing It's Not Easy Being Green to mm. Jim Henson's casket. <laughs> I I saw that
1: a clip of that in the Carol Spinney documentary I Am Big Bird, mm. which is a great one and also what I thought about highlighting instead here instead of Dawson City, but
0: uh, yeah, definitely a very moving moment for sure. Uh, so Harry Belafonte, why, why number four?
1: Uh, well, it's obviously for for all the gurus you think there. Like the top three are going to be more like kind of personally geared as you'll kind of see, like what mm-hmm. I, I like more. But it's it's a really terrific one just from Belafonte as a performer. Just starting off with the, the Banana Boat song, I think is really terrific. It's a, it's an electric song that kind of gets everyone going And doing it with the Muppets is, is terrific. But then when he, when they do do the, uh, it is the turn the world around, isn't it? Yeah. Turn the world around. Yep. It's, it's a very kind of, kind of moving and emotional song. Like you kind of indicated earlier that they do at various points in the show that, you know, I think really delivers on that feeling, and it's a longer number as well. And they have the the tribal theming to it, the African theme with the Muppets going yeah, on. Yeah,
0: with the with the African masks done yes. as uh,
1: performers. Mm-hmm. And it and it works really cohesively well with the uh, the idea there of the song. And I think the the authenticity of the whole performance and the blending with the the Muppets and the enthusiasm just really comes through in the, the entirety of that episode. I don't necessarily remember the gags from it. If there was a particular like comedy bit that stuck out,
0: uh, him, him and animal doing dueling drums always makes me laugh. Mm -hmm. Uh, just sort of the backstage plot of Fozzie helping direct this one, this show, Mm -hmm. uh, always makes me laugh. Leggies and jangle fins always makes me laugh. Uh, yeah, well. yeah uh, okay. It's it's respectable number 4. Yeah, Could it's number the, 1. It's what five. what what beat it? What's number 3? Okay, number 3 for me is Elton John. It, uh, okay, fair enough. Yeah, fair El- enough. Elton that, John. That's a great episode.
1: Yeah, it's it's not just a great episode of course, but the the song selection you have there already tough to beat Elton John performing like four of his his greatest hits. Uh, mm-hmm. And he works so well with the Muppets with his eccentric costumes and everything. Oh, yeah. he looks, you know, he fits right in with everything. He does. Uh, I love the great duet he does with uh, Miss Piggy doing Don't Go yeah. Break It My Heart. That's, that's a hilarious bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and so I think it's just and it's a, a really great example of how the a performer can really mesh with the Muppets stylistically and comedically when they're just down to to be with them
0: oh yeah
1: uh, and of course this is, this is Elton John at like the height of his musical prowess he just he sounds killer and uh you know he's a true uh performer in kind of every sense there and you, and you see it uh even here when he's sh- you know chilling with the Muppets <laughs> okay okay what's number two for you Number two for me is another one, again, a great musical performer. And this one is Ethel Merman. Okay. Okay. That's a season one pick. It is. Uh, and part of it's just because Ethel Merman herself is still just a firebrand of a performer. Oh, yeah. At this age, even. And she's so absolutely terrific and fun and, and funny on the show. Like, she just gets mm-hmm. it. And again, another example where like a great duet with Miss Piggy, where she does the song from Annie Get Your Gun, where they have their, their, their like kind of standoff.
0: <laughs> yeah, anything you can do, I can do better. Mm-hmm.
1: And I think it's terrific. Uh, even if I'm not a huge fan of the song, I think it makes me like the song, but she's she's wonderful in it. And I think, it, you know, it just has, it's, it's very funny throughout as well. I was, I was constantly entertained by it. Again, like it, it is another one though, where I feel like the, the comedy sequences themselves have kind
0: of left my memory. Do you have a, do you have a refresher for me? Uh, the comedy sequences for Ethel Merman? I'm going to need a refresher on that. Okay, it's a, <laughs> I, I it's remember the, the big where... medley they do. It's the one uh, that... There's, yeah. there's the talk spot. Um, she does the interview with Kermit. Um, mm-hmm. Where he says he was at her first performance. Oh, and she right. says, Oh, I thought I heard a frog in the audience. <laughs>
1: there's one bit uh, i remember in particular where she like she's laughing and then she like has this immediate like scowl she puts on and she smacks Kerwin i'm pretty sure somebody yeah yeah it's she's a-
0: got she's got some good comedic comedic bits
1: yeah um she yeah she's she's absolutely terrific i think and that's why she gets so high for me there again like i i do think it's interesting that it's I'm I'm mostly weighing these by how much I like the performers as opposed to
0: like the sketches or like the compositions that show. Yeah, that's that's entirely fair. The show's built on the guest stars, so yeah,
1: so it depends. But I'll uh, I'll bring it around to my number one, which I'm I'm sure you can guess because I kind of hinted it to you last night, and that one was <laughs> Danny Kaye, Danny Kaye from season three.
0: Yeah, which uh, is which is odd because I don't remember that episode too well. Uh, I'm, um, I'm happy
1: I'm happy to relay much of it because I. I do remember a lot from that one, like, as an episode, it stuck out to me. um, And also, you know, just the musical qualities of it and whatnot. And I actually looked, it is the highest rated of all the episodes on IMDb. So I feel a little validated here in making this claim
0: okay okay go ahead go ahead so, make your make your case <laughs> so the the
1: episode starts with uh statler and Waldorf uh leaving the theater they go outside and they're like they're hanging out on like the street or whatever and danny k kind of like sneaks off and follows them and listens and and they're like you know oh we don't want to sit here for this danny k fellow like they don't like him and he's a little mm-hmm. hurt by it you know and you know they have this whole bit about it but uh danny k obviously being uh Prominent musical star of the 1950s is a great, you know, performer throughout and does lots of uh, terrific songs, you know, uh, numbers together.
0: There's there's a particularly
1: moving emotional one they do called uh, Inchworm at the end where they get all of the uh, Muppets together. Oh, that's
0: Danny. Okay, yes, I do remember the Inchworm uh, sequence. Mm -hmm. Uh, I remember that one very well because I sing that song to myself all the time
1: yeah so he Uh, would not
0: have put danny k to that sequence
1: (laughs) yep that's that's danny k who does that one and then but before that he also has two other uh really great sequences that stood out to me and one of them uh, is another musical one again another duet with miss piggy he does um cheek to cheek which is another Mm. astaire song (laughs) so yeah it's, uh, again, I
0: have to wonder if they bought like a bunch of a stair songs on bulk or There's a lot, again, like you get these Irving Berlin ones or they're, they're, I guess they're very easy to get the rights
1: to or, or something uh, a lot of, yeah. you know, er, early Broadway classics and such but uh, it, the build-up to the Cheek to Cheek I think is really great because it starts mm-hmm. with Danny Kaye coming in and like coming in and, and greeting Miss Piggy and being like really enthusiastic about uh, performing with her and and i think you get this genuine sense that danny k like really was enthusiastic about performing with the muppets and miss piggy in in yeah. particular and
0: uh, three of your top five all feature miss piggy duets
1: i know uh something about the they're just they work they they work yeah. really well i think and, you know they're, they're really terrific uh but but this one in particular i like because it's like it's an emotion like 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 it's a it's a romantic song number but their relationship begins to like deteriorate before because of some like comments mm-hmm. that Danny Kaye makes about seeing her at one point when she was thinner or something like earlier in her career. Yeah. she gets a, so like the whole song Karate Chop. Yeah, the whole song number they do together, this romantic duet, is done through like gritted teeth, <laughs> <laughs> and they're like kind of okay. at each other's throats.
0: Yeah, but, I'll, I'll have to I'll have to rewatch that one because, yeah. like I said, uh. I guess I never introduced the fact I grew up with this show because I was given the DVD set as a kid and I would mm-hmm. often watch it on long vacations. So that's my association. That's why I'm the Muppet expert.
1: I think it's a, <laughs> I think it's a great show to be able to watch constantly like that because I think it does have a lot of free watch yeah. value. I, uh, well, just one last thing about the Danny Kaye one of this, I have to say that my favorite bit of course, was it from like, cause cause the other thing I think that really weighs is like, how much guest do you get into your episode of, the muppets each time like Mm -hmm. sometimes they're only there for like two sketches, or maybe like the end or maybe you're liberace and you just do a big performance at the end which is like yeah yeah. that's it's a it's a good performance but like you're not really doing much with the muppets you know how is this any different from any other tv special he did but but with danny k like one of the comedy bits he does he's he comes in as the swedish chef's uncle (laughs) it's -hmm. just it was a fucking riot like cuz the swedish chef bits are always great they're always funny yeah and and then to bring in a a more articulate character who is just as chaotic you know and <laughs> they, they dress him up to look just like the swedish chef too and it's very funny and it was it was definitely like it was a surprising highlight because like f- film wise like i'm not a huge danny k fan like you know i'm i'm not crazy enthusiastic about him i think he's he's good but not like you know with the the rest mm-hmm. of the great performers but here he's just this is this is such a terrific delight of an episode and i was i was so surprised and taken with it and again not not only in the comedy or the music but also like the emotional part particularly with like the inchworm segment you know like i, I yeah called to do do you have any other favorites you would want to highlight as well
0: now that you've heard my top five um I would say the Steve Martin episode, that's probably my number two. I watched that Um, one as well. That
1: that one's interesting because it's different. It's like they're they're not doing the
0: show. They're not doing the show. They're holding auditions and Steve Martin just happens to be there because no one told him the show was canceled. Mm -hmm. So you get to see some of his uh, original stand up, which is very great. Um, That's actually, what's great about that episode is that the laughter you hear is the actual production crew. They leave it in. Um, and a lot of the steve martin bits are improvised if, if it feels um, like and i think cool. also just it has some great musical numbers as well uh you do you have statler and waldorf audition and they do mm-hmm. the varsity grand uh you have gonzos dancing cheese yep <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, and of course uh steve martin on
0: the banjo which is uh, always mm-hmm. terrific yeah Yep, yep, they do uh, a bit of dueling banjos, but then it goes into one of Steve Martin's original songs. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I always like the Alice Cooper episode. I watch that every Halloween. It's
1: it's a good one. It is very kind of weird, though. I think in a lot of ways, if you're familiar with with Alice Cooper, I, 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 watching it, I felt like he was very like. Like they took a lot of the bite out of him, of course, because like he doesn't have the more heavy. I don't. know. He
0: tries to get people to sell their soul to the devil. I
1: don't that's, know. That's
0: true. I, how I you meant qualify like qualify that on the bite
1: scale. More, more like musically. I felt I was surprised that they were doing Alice Cooper songs. Like I didn't think they would actually go. go oh yeah. That. I I read somewhere that that a, like the Alice Cooper episodes were pulled
0: like from from some places because they were deemed like too scary or something. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, I always liked the Milton Berle episode. That one I didn't see. Y'all Tell me about that one. That one, uh, it's great because you have Milton Berle, this great, uh, very well-known vaudeville star. And it's sort of an honor to his legacy um, and his talent. He sings The Entertainer Mm. on it. um, And it's really, he sings it from the perspective of himself. He is the entertainer. Um, and it's done very melancholy and slow until it picks up and they get all the other Muppets in to sing along with him. Uh, they, they do some great gags where, uh, he attempts to entertain Statler and Waldorf, but is unable to.
1: <laughs> They're always they a great, great staple no respect. Of the show, by the way. I don't know if we mentioned like how great Statler
0: and Waldorf are. Statler and Waldorf are the greatest, uh, not out gay couple on television. <laughs>
1: Do you, do you believe that Astoria is is real, or do you think it's uh, just uh, Statler?
0: <laughs> oh, Astoria for the episode where um, Statler is out, but his, uh, but Waldorf's wife is attending. Yes. And it's, it's, it's just, just... <laughs> it's Statler in a wig. Yep. You know what? Whatever they need in their old age to keep the spark alive, more <laughs> power to them. They go to a show they hate every night because it's free. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, other other great episodes I want to highlight. I've always liked Leo Sayer, uh, Gilda Radner. She was the one person from SNL who had some respect for <laughs> Jim Henson. Uh, yeah, I think season two and three are sort of the highlights. One is much more experimental. You get some some oddball picks like the Mumbinshans. Yeah, you you showed me that one, and that one was like really bizarre. <laughs> That's just because the Mum and Shans are a very bizarre performing trio. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, season four and five, you get a lot more experimental. You get, uh, so between three and four, the Muppet movie came out. Mm. And that was a big hit. And so now uh, literally everyone wants to be on. You get uh, Debbie Reynolds on, uh, Blondie, better known as. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get Victor Borgia who's uh, there to do some, some high-class uh, opera. It's just... Uh, and then once you get to season five, I feel like the show starts running out of ideas, for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. Um, they, cha- they remove the cold open with Scooter, Mm. Uh, coming to get the guest star from the dressing room and change it to the guest star arriving to the theater and having to speak with this doorman character whose joke is he's old and hard of hearing and mispronounces the guest star's name mm. it doesn't work as well uh they still got some good uh people in there uh, i'm trying to remember his name you get gene kelly yep uh so i see uh, there.
1: marty feldman was in that one i didn't get to that one but
0: Marty Feldman and Paul Simon are highlights of season five. Uh, It's a real shame the Brooke Shields episode is not on Disney+. Um, Mm Plus. It was removed uh, for the reason that Disney always has things removed, because it invokes the Wizard of Oz. (laughs) (laughs) It's... Uh, and that, that's a shame because the Brooke Shields episode is really elaborate. It's the Muppet show putting on Alice in Wonderland with Brooke Shields as Alice. So it's one of those, um, they do it with Linda Redgrave too, where they do Robin Hood for her episode. I think that one is also off Disney Plus, unfortunately. Um, uh, but the Brooke Shields episode is great, but it, the problem is they're doing Alice in Wonderland and it slowly turns into the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> That sounds funny. I I
1: like the idea for that.
0: Yeah, unfortunately you can only get that bootlegged uh, because seasons four and five were never brought to DVD. Oh, that's a bummer.
1: Never, but maybe they will sometime in the future, but uh, with the way physical media is going, I guess it's not as likely.
0: I'll hold on. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, Brooke Shields and then who was the uh, other guest star that didn't make it to Disney Plus because he was a horrible pedophile. Uh Ooh. it was Chris Langham.
1: Mm.
0: It was also on season 5. Uh so when people talk about Disney censoring the Muppet Show or how the Muppets are canceled by the liberals, uh keep in mind it's because of copyright infringement and being a pedophile gets you taken <laughs> off the, the Muppet Show. So it's everything everything in perspective. <laughs> I think uh yeah that, that definitely gives
1: you a better uh, more nuanced look at the the cancel culture of, of disney here
0: yeah and it's just a wonder that it came to disney plus at all because there are very few original songs on the muppet show yeah. and the ones that are on are from the movies um <laughs> mm-hmm. and so it's just a a quagmire of song rights and copyright and it, i i i'd be happy with what you have because this is the most high def the muppet show has ever been even my dvd versions aren't that great Mm -hmm. it's yeah it's just terrific to have it and again i don't think i would have
1: seen this which is really again like a cultural you know landmark uh without you know it being brought to to disney plus like this so you know terrific that they were able to to add it and that they can bring Uh, Again, I hope they keep bringing some of their old,
0: more, you know, television content, the stuff they have stuffed way, way in the back of the vault. They just uh, brought on the 1990s Alice in Wonderland show, uh, the live action one, if you're familiar with that. I'm not. Uh, It's a bit of a trip. There's a lot of very, very recognizable people on that show such as oj simpson oh <laughs> uh among other people people who would get more famous in the 2000s um i think at one point they bring on the mickey mouse club uh, the mickey mouse the mouseketeers at the time so you get britney spears and justin timberlake mm-hmm. uh and it's just kind of a good show it has a very muppet energy actually <laughs> interesting well
1: i'm so glad murphy you could join us here to talk about the muppet show uh, i think it's yeah. really terrific and uh, it was a lot of fun uh sad that calvin can be here for it but i'm sure they have fun editing this together as well and you know kind of taking it all in and we hope that you'll be able to join us again you know for one oh yeah
0: definitely and just find another thing an area of my expertise i'm, I'm sure it'll
1: be hard it's it's a you have a widespread expertise of various niches and in corners of the the world of culture so i'm sure we'll find something interesting to dig up here bring you back for it. yes
0: and remember to catch me next week on the daydreamcast streaming on twingeeks.com yes good
1: plug good
0: plug that let's uh
1: sign out thanks for tuning in this
0: week everyone make
1: sure as always check out our website the twingeeks.com for our latest reviews retrospectives and features you can follow us on twitter as well at TwinGeeks geeks and individually uh at david a punch and uh or do you have a twitter you want to plug or
0: no no my twitter my twitter is a secret
1: okay secret twitter from murph so you'll have to go really hunting for it if you want to see it (laughs) don't forget to check out our uh, sister video game show the daydream cast like we mentioned uh, available on apple Podcasts, spotify and anywhere else podcasts are played leave a review and rating if you can and we'll see you next week for another conversation on classic and contemporary cinema
0: Phenomena, 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 no, 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 <laughs>